Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. He came off the mountain where he gave the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he healed a man who was unclean, a leper. He healed him by touching him and by speaking him clean. Now he's on his way to Capernaum. He's getting close, and he's got a crowd following him. In the distance, coming from Capernaum, is a group of Jewish elders. And they have something on their mind. They're coming to see him, and there's probably a bit of a group with them. They're very concerned. They, they say, there's a centurion who lives in our town, a Capernaum. He's a good man. He loves our nation. He built our, temp, our, our synagogue. He has a servant boy. The servant boy he cares about deeply has thrown himself down, and he's, he's paralyzed, and he's sick, and he's suffering, and he's perishing. He's going to die. And, and we know that if you say the word, he can be healed. Probably after that then, this boy was in such dire pain, the centurion himself is coming now down the road. And the centurion, he sees Jesus. This crowd is behind Jesus. And now there's probably a crowd behind this loved centurion. He's over a hundred soldiers. He's a leader. He loves the nation of Israel. He's paid for the Capernaum. He's paid for the uh, synagogue in Capernaum. And he's grieved and he's burdened. He's, he's probably his young servant boy is in just such writhing, horrible pain that the entire household is on edge. He's so loved and he's in such great, desperate pain. And people know that it's just probably hours until he dies. And, and, he, and the centurion himself now and his entourage, they come. So the two crowds meet together. The crowd following Jesus has heard his teaching, has seen him heal. And the crowd that's coming out of Capernaum there on the shores of Galilee to come and to appeal on behalf of this boy who's not there, can you heal him? The centurion then says to Jesus about this, tells to Jesus about the boy. He doesn't ask him anything. He just tells him about the boy. Scholars say that Jesus probably in verse 7 there of Matthew chapter 8 asked a question. Here he comes, a Roman soldier and a Gentile. To a Jewish teacher. He says, at my house, there's a boy who's very sick, and, and he's, he's, he's dying, he's perishing. Jesus probably asked him a question at that point and says to him, so you want me to come to your house? This is something a Jewish teacher wouldn't do, go into a Gentile home. You want me to come to your house? It was almost a challenge to him. And in, in, in great humility and in great wisdom, this centurion says, oh my, no. I would never be worthy of you coming to my house. But I'm a man under authority. I know what it's like to have people tell me what to do and I go and do it. And I have men under me that if I tell them to go here and do that, they, they do it. And I know you are a man of ultimate authority, he says. If you just say the word, I know he'll be healed. At this point, Jesus turns from this crowd, the crowd with the centurion facing him, to the crowd that was following him, a primarily Jewish crowd. And he says, in essence, did you hear what he just said? Did you hear what this Gentile just said? 
Did you hear that this non-Jewish man just said? He has such great faith. He believes that I can speak a word and it will happen. He says, I haven't seen this kind of faith even in Israel. While that settles in, he says something even more. Essentially, Jesus says, you know, there will come a time when everyone reclines with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom, and they have a feast together. And some will come from far away from this land, and they will recline with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In other words, there'll be non-Jewish people that are going to come, and they'll be in the kingdom. And then he says, and you know, there will be some that are of this nation that will be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. While that's settling in on the crowd, he turns back and he says, you can go home now because your servant's healed. (laughs) Amen. What do you think about that? Uh, Cool story? Did you like it? Did you like my story? How do you feel about Jesus when you hear stories like that? When you have this young boy who's suffering and he's dying, and everyone in the whole city is just grieved about it. And they're crying out, nobody can help him. They go to Jesus, Jesus teaches, and he heals. How do you feel about that? Makes me want to burst into applause. Makes me want to praise his name. Makes me want to sing songs about him. Makes me want to tell people who, who Jesus is. I like Grand Haven at the end of the summer. We lived over on that part of the state, and it was Labor Day. And we had that feeling that you have when the summer is coming to an end. Labor Day is kind of the last day of summer. In a town like Grand Haven, you especially feel the, the weight of that because it's over on Lake Michigan and there's a lighthouse and there's a pier and everybody spends their summer days along that walk and on the beach and in that little village, in that town. But on Labor Day, it's like the last day of summer. Now shops are going to close and they're going to roll the sidewalks up and folks are going to go back to Detroit and they're going to go back to Chicago and they're going to go back to school and they're going to go back to work. So it's a poignant evening, that last day of summer, that, that Labor Day. We went over there as a family and we decided we would walk out to the lighthouse and we would watch the sunset one more time on the summer. And we hurried out there. We didn't get there in time. The sun set as we were getting out toward the end of the pier, out toward the lighthouse. The sun set. You, you ever been there on Lake Michigan? There's got to be no place in the world quite like Lake Michigan on a summer evening when the sun sets over Lake Michigan. You ever been there? You see the big ball of the sun come down, a clear, perfect sky, and things just start to turn purple and blue and pink, and then the sun touches the water. It's almost like the water boils and the sun drops into the water, and and all too quickly, it's over with. Well, we were walking along there, and it was just that perfect sunset. And the place was just lined with people. There were, there were so many people there. And we got out there, and we just stood, and we watched as the sunset. And then finally, when the last little dot of fire went behind the lake, you know what happened? Everybody there just spontaneously gave God a round of applause. They all just clapped. They cheered for a perfect sunset. They said to God, thank you, God, for that beautiful sunset. This week I've been living in this story and reading this story and studying this story. And when my heart got wrapped around this story and I get to the end and Jesus turns back to the centurion and tells him, go home. 
And I imagine that little boy, that little healed boy, when he gets better, he jumps off his bed and he's running to find the centurion. And, and they meet running somewhere there on the outskirts of Capernaum. I just want to say to the Lord, you with me on this? <laughs> what do you think? When you see what Jesus does for perishing people, doesn't it just want to make you stand up and give him a standing ovation? Doesn't it make you want to give him a word of praise? Doesn't it make you want to thank him and praise him and tell everybody you know? It does me. We were in, we were in Mexico. Got to go there in 2006. Beautiful land of Mexico. And we were treated like royalty. They were so kind to us. We would go places that were very, very, very poor. And there was just this gracious hospitality. One thing I love about Mexico is wherever you go in Mexico, you can get a real Coke with real sugar in it in a real glass bottle. Cheap. I like that. And there's this great hospitality. And then in the evening, sometimes we would go places where there was great wealth, much greater wealth than I'm used to. And you would have a catered meal and a fiesta and lights hanging in the trees. Um, We decided on the bus in the middle of the night driving to Mexico that what we were going to do is we were going to come up with a a song. And though very few of us know any Spanish, we were going to teach ourselves a song in Spanish. And we were going to sing a song in Spanish to Mexican people in the plazas. Because they have this wonderful tradition in the summer, in the evening, that everyone gathers in the plaza, and it's just a wonderful time when everyone's there. And so when we would take our group, we were going to sing a song in Spanish. Well, I knew this beautiful song in Spanish, but I had no idea what the song meant. But it sure sounded pretty, and it was from a trusted artist, uh, Fernando Ortega. So I said, it's got to be good. If it's Fernando Ortega, it's got to be good. Did you write that down? Yeah. And, uh, and so I said, we're going we're gonna to sing this song, and so it's uh, Con que pagaremos. So one of the girls knew Spanish. I said, tell me what this song means that we're singing. And I'll never forget when she, she told me what the song meant. Here's what the song, here's how the song goes in an English version. How can I repay you for your great love? That you gave your life for a sinner like me. Would you receive my humble offering? Lord Jesus Christ, a gift of thanks from my trembling hands. When the night sky spreads his mantle around me, my tear-stained face I turn up toward you. And raising my eyes, I see the stars, and I know that beyond them, a loving father, you watch over me. I cannot repay you with silver or gold for the great sacrifice of your love for me. I have nothing of value to offer Receive the song, my tears, and my heart devoted to you. How can I repay you? I plan to tell about you all my life. I plan to sing about you all my life. But then I won't be done repaying you, Lord. That's a good question to ask when we come to a story like this. How can I repay you? Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Let's read the story now. Now when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant's lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, 
Only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this one, go. And he goes to another, come. And he comes to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus says to the centurion, go your way. As you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed in the same hour. Now here's our loaded question. Here's our loaded question. Why did God the Holy Spirit have Matthew put this story like this in the Bible? Why? It's a question that we want to ask a couple of questions. One one would be, how can I repay you, Lord? But before we answer that question, it will help us to answer this question. Now, why is this story here? What purpose did God the Holy Spirit have in inspiring Matthew to put this story like this here? That's a very, very good question to ask and to answer. You, get, you answer that question, and all of a sudden, this old story leaps right into your life. You answer that question, and this old ancient story jumps right into this week. And it captures you. It kind of grabs you by the throat. We were in Capernaum. You knew I was going to say that, right? We saw this... Uh, we saw this um, synagogue. Do you realize if the scholars are right, and I think that they are, you, you see the light part is the Byzantine era part of the synagogue in Capernaum. And the dark part is the first century part. The part the centurion whose servant was healed paid for. Isn't that amazing? There it is. See the dark stones, the first century stones, that the man the story is about, or at least the secondary figure, of this story, this centurion, he paid for them in Capernaum. And Jesus adopted this city as his city. Why is this story here? Well, it's here to prove that Jesus is God. We've established that as we've studied the book of Matthew. Matthew is making an argument, especially to Jewish people, that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's proving it a whole bunch of different ways. One way that he proves that Jesus is Messiah is proving in the first few chapters, the first four chapters, that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies for the Messiah. And then he gives, he rolls out the teaching of Jesus. And you can obviously tell by the teaching of Jesus, his, his authority. It's not just that he's a good teacher. It's like he's the teacher of all the teachers. And when it comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what Matthew says. He points out, he spoke as one having authority, infinite authority, absolute authority. And now, like I said last week, to prove that Jesus can back up his claims, he starts doing miracles. And Matthew includes a handful of these miracles, of these thousands of miracles, Matthew includes a handful of them that are like kind of a cross-section of the miraculous work of Jesus to kind of show that Jesus has got. But there's another reason because there's something about, there's kind of a subtlety and they're kind of a, they're kind of a nuance, they're kind of extra things that are in these stories that tell us there's more to them than just to prove that Jesus is God. It's also to show what he's like that he's compassionate with people who are suffering, compassionate 
with people who are perishing and that he cares for people of all nations. This is very interesting. We'll talk about that a bit more later. And it also is to get us involved in caring for suffering and perishing people. I told you this was going to jump into your life, right? So the people that you care about, or certainly ought to, that are perishing, that are suffering. And he wants to pull us into this plan. So that's one of the reasons. Now, the question, why did Matthew put this here? Those are some of the answers. And the question, if this is all true, I'm going to owe him for all of eternity for what he's done for me. How can I repay him? When you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, when you believe that Jesus is who Matthew argues who he is, when you believe some interesting things happen, some miraculous things happen in your life, let me give you some examples. One, you'll have a place in the kingdom yourself. It's what it's talking about there in verses 10 and 11. Jesus is kind of warning them. Some of you who think you're going to be in the kingdom and reclining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be cast into outer darkness and in eternal conscious torment. And over and over again in Matthew, Jesus talked about this weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said it over and over again. Eternal conscious torment of all who do not believe that Jesus Christ alone is God and Savior. But it won't be enough in that day to say, yes, I had Jesus on my God shelf with those other gods. I thought highly of him as a teacher. I appreciated the ethics of Jesus. There are many paths to God and all of that nonsense. No, all those will be cast into outer outer darkness, no matter how religious they are, no matter how self-righteous they are, or no matter how many messages of the gospel that they've heard. If you believe, you will have a place in the kingdom. But if you do not believe, you will suffer forever outside in the darkness. If you believe, you'll show your faith by obedience. We're kind of like going through the passage backwards now. If you believe, you'll show your faith by obedience. This is a pretty interesting part of this passage. Also in Luke chapter 7, the parallel of this. The centurion says something that Jesus says he marvels over. He showed that he had genuine faith. But how did he do it? He showed that he had genuine faith by understanding the whole principle of authority and by eagerly placing himself at Jesus' disposal as the authority. Jesus says, the centurion says, I'm a man under authority. It's interesting. If I was a centurion, I might have said it this way. Hey, I understand authority. I have a hundred men that answer to me. Now you know a little bit more about me, right? (laughs) I would be like, I have a hundred guys. I tell them what to do. They do it. That's not what he said first. He, He qualified himself as a leader by saying he sees himself as what? I am not a man who has authority. I'm a man who's under authority. And nobody is worthy of authority who's not conscious that he is a man or she is a woman who is under authority. In other words, my children are under my authority. That does not mean, even though it is a very convenient thing to have them get the remote control for me and wait on me hand and foot and get the pizza at night when I'm tired and so forth. And this thing, I must say, happens quite frequently. That's not the ultimate purpose of my being in authority over them so that I have people to, people to go get you know, barbecue chicken pizza from Jets whenever I want it. You might want to write that down too, by the way. I, uh, I get no personal reward for these advertisements. That's not the purpose of me being an authority. The main purpose is like, I know there's a God. And I know that my kids' lives are going to be really messed up if they don't line up under God and get into God's plan. And so as an agent of God, I gently try to to exercise benevolent authority like God exercises benevolent authority so that they will never stray from the path of genuine faith in obedience to God. 
This qualifies me to have authority then. And this man had this authority. He understood, I know that you are the one who has ultimate authority over death and suffering. And I know that if you just say the word, he's going to be okay. This is true of people who really believe. They show that they really believe by eager obedience and understanding that they're under authority too. When you really believe, you'll also get involved in what God's doing. This is interesting because why does Matthew put this in here and why does Jesus do this and why does Jesus say what he says at this this particular time? There's a theme in the whole book of Matthew and I want you to see it. We won't spend a lot of time there because we're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew over the next few months, but I'll just show you today and you can see this and I think it will interest you. There's this theme of the Gentiles in Matthew. It's interesting. If Matthew is aimed toward Jewish people, why do the Gentiles keep popping up in it? Because God is trying to say to the Jews, you are my special chosen people. Not so I could just pamper you all the time, but so that you could be a light to the Gentiles. The Jews today in the Holy Land need to understand this very thing about the people who live around them. Your job is to be a blessing to all the world. As I bless you, you are to bless all the world. The Jewish people have this place of privilege so that they, through Christ, can be a blessing to all of the world. That's the way it's supposed to work. But what happens when we have privileges, we tend to say, I have a special privilege with God. And I enjoy my special parking privileges with God, and I'm not sure I want any competition. So Jesus is continually having Matthew tell stories about people who weren't Jews who had faith. This happens over and over and over again. Early in the book, who is it that comes and recognizes that Jesus is king? Gentile kings come and recognize that Jesus is king. When we get further on in the book in chapters 21 through 23, Jesus is going to tell a series of very pointed stories. And the stories all have a common theme. The stories are stories of how someone is sent but rejected. And then by received by others. And it's not subtle at all. Jesus is telling stories saying, God sent prophets to you, but you killed the prophets. And now the prophets are going to go to somebody else. And now I'm coming to you, and you're going to kill me. And the message is going to go to others. So over and over, these same stories are trying to get them to see God intends for Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. And you might think your eyes are glassing over and you're thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch and you don't think this has anything to do with you. But it does. Because if Jesus was standing here today, don't you think he would want you and I, who have the privileges of the gospel, to be a light to the nations? Don't you think he would want us to have a heart for the nations? Don't you think he would want us to have a special love and not prejudice for people whose color of their skin is a bit different than ours? Don't you think he would want us to be excited that we live among people of different kind of ethnicities and different backgrounds, different nations, that he plunked us in the middle of of a mission field here in the greater Detroit area? Wouldn't a church like ours have to answer to God that there are so many people that don't know Christ, that drive by our church all of the time? Shouldn't we exhaust ourselves to try to figure out some way to reach the people that Jesus loves and wants in his kingdom. They're just assuming that we have special parking privileges with God and kind of like enjoying that. Of course, that's what we need to see. 
In the book of Matthew, it goes further, and he begins to excoriate the scribes and Pharisees for their exclusivity and their self-righteousness. And then when he gets into chapters 24 and 25, we call the Olivet Discourse. It's talking about the future, and he's painting a picture where the other nations are a part of God's redemptive program. Thank the Lord. And then when he gets to the end of Matthew, what's the last thing he says? Go into all the world and be witnesses in every nation. Every nation. And the nations and the people, there are those who are hungry. There are those who are eager. There are those who are interested. Not everyone. But there are those. You'll see what God's doing in the world, and you'll want to be involved, and you will overcome prejudice, and you'll overcome self-righteousness against people, recognizing that people are precious to God, no matter where they come from or what they're like. And then you'll also intercede. And this is maybe the heart of it. Do you see this? There's kind of a... There's kind of a beautiful intercession. The little boy never actually shows up in the story. In a Luke passage, it's the Jewish elders that are coming, and they're interceding for the centurion who's interceding for his servant boy. You see that? They're, saying, they're not asking for something for themselves. They're coming to Jesus asking for something for the centurion who's been good to them. And when the centurion comes, if he's speaking here in this passage, the centurion is not asking for something for himself He's got somebody he loves, and that somebody is suffering. And the suffering must be intense because it's driven these people out of town to go get Jesus and bring him back. And his heart is broken because the Luke passage says he cares for him deeply. And so because he cares deeply for this suffering, perishing boy, he goes to intercede with Jesus on his behalf. And I will tell you, if you will pay attention, there are people that are suffering and perishing all around this great church, all around this great area. People that are suffering and perishing because of their sin. People that are suffering and perishing because of the results of the curse on the world. And we know Jesus. Our job then is to intercede to Jesus on behalf of those who are suffering and those who are perishing to put them on our prayer list. I'm going to get off this subject, but remember last week I told you the story about my, my mother's conversion and my aunt's conversion, and I hinted at the story of my grandmother's conversion because of a lady whose name was Isabella Rice. She had a little part of that because it was at her funeral that she, my grandmother Charlotte heard the gospel at Isabella Rice's funeral. When they went through Isabella Rice's things, they found out that Charlotte and my mother and my aunt and my uncle were on her prayer list. That's it. Is that cool? I thought it was cool. When I was looking through my mom's things, this is the very thing. February 1948, Charlotte and her children are on Isabella Rice's prayer list. You could say, your pastor is here today because Isabella Rice had a burden for Charlotte whose life was messed up and her girls and their marriage was messed up and Isabella Rice prayed, and when she died, she didn't ever see it happen. When she died, the pastor was a gospel-preaching pastor. He gave the gospel. Charlotte got saved. There's another little entry in Isabella Rice's prayer journal that my mom actually has, and I took a picture of it. What What does God expect of us when we look at a story like this? I think he expects us to put suffering, perishing people on our prayer list. And intercede to God on their behalf. That God would work in their hearts to do miraculous things that nobody else can do. Hey, here's the song. Down in the human heart.